Composer Quest, Tommy Craft, talking about music and Star Trek and other stuff, and the six to the four to the one to the five, and done. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran. And in this show, I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists to bring you musical inspiration and practical composing tips. Today's episode features a guy who's following through on a crazy adventure to make a feature-length Star Trek fan film. Tommy Kraft has written, directed, edited, and scored this Kickstarter-backed film called Star Trek Horizon. In our talk, Tommy shares what it's like to spend three years totally absorbed in a huge creative project like this. I really wasn't kidding when I said I don't have a life outside of this. I think a lot of what makes success is both money and luck. But I think your chances are much greater if you are willing to basically live under a bridge to do what you want to do. Tommy also shares what he's learned in scoring Star Trek Horizon. I find action scenes to be some of the easiest to write for because like, the chances of your music being intrusive are really slim. But, like, the hardest thing for me is when you have a quiet scene, you know, two people talking about, like, the death of someone they love or whatever. All that and more coming up. Now, a moment to thank my patrons. This week, I have a jingle for a new patron of the podcast, Harrelson Trumpets. It's a local trumpet manufacturer here in the Twin Cities, co-run by my friend Jennifer Sandquist. Thanks to Jennifer and everyone at Harrelson Trumpets for the support. Harrelson Trumpets, where quality is the plan. They'll make you sound better than MIDI trumpets can. With custom manufactured modular mouthpieces. Harrelson Trumpets. If you're interested in becoming a patron of Composer Quest, visit patreon.com slash charlie. One quick shout out. Two years ago, I interviewed Will and Wendell at Sideshow Sound Theater for a special Halloween episode. Since then, those guys have started a great podcast where they nerd out about film scores. In honor of Star Wars Episode 7, they've put out podcast episodes diving into the scores of the original trilogy. They also asked me to pick my favorite score from each film and record a little commentary for their show, which was a ton of fun. I highly recommend checking those episodes out. Search for Sideshow Star Wars Score Guide. Composer Quest Season 5 is coming to a close with just one episode after this one, and I have a major announcement coming up in that episode, so stay tuned next week. Now let's get on to my talk with Tommy Kraft. Tommy, thanks for coming on Composer Quest here. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Should be fun. Yeah. Well, it was fun checking out your project, Star Trek Horizons, which is your fan-made Star Trek film yep. um, that you're currently working on. And I, I just saw that you have the picture lock all set. I do. Uh, it's very exciting after 
around close to three years now working on this movie and finally picture lock is complete and i'm uh i'm about close to an hour into the score now so uh which is uh, what brings me your direction yeah that's cool i suppose it's harder to say that you're you're done and picture locked seeing as how you're doing all the editing and all the music yeah and everything yeah um so i'm sure you're tempted to like tweak things Oh yeah, and I actually I have a list of things that I'm going to go back and tweak once I uh, once I finish the score. But that's why you know when I finished the picture lock, it felt uh, it didn't. F- I, I was hoping that would feel like the sense of accomplishment, and it literally didn't feel any different. It just <laughs> it's just because there's so much more work still yet to do. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's still it's it's supposed to be a milestone. <laughs> yeah, maybe I get. I suppose having. Having Kickstarter backers kind of holding you accountable helps you stay on target with your deadlines and stuff? Or? Well, I mean, not with staying on target with deadlines, because I originally wanted to have the film out winter of last year. Oh. <laughs> but I will say, it does help keep me motivated in some ways, because once you get uh, this far into any project, especially one you know where I'm doing so much of it myself, you know... and. Uh, I've I've never done a project this big, this entirely by myself, because previously it's always been just composing, or I've just been, you know, cinematographer, or just been visual effects artist, or or whatever. I mean, of course, I did a lot of short films of my own, too, but never uh, anything to this scale. So having those backers there who are looking for the movie is at least... uh, Of course, very appreciated, but it helps keep me motivated to keep going as well. Yeah. What other things help keep you motivated to uh, push through and finish a big project like that? Uh, Binge watching a good TV show. Uh, That's always nice because, uh, you know, it gives you uh, a break. I'm binge watching Continuum right now. Uh, it's a good show. But, uh, you know, it's I don't really know. I mean, it's really just a sense of like I have to get it done. And so I do, you know, I set these, I set many goals. I have to get, you know, such and such scene done by a certain time. So I feel like I'm accomplishing something, but you know, I don't really have like a, a method to, to keep myself invested. Um, I mean, do you have a method <laughs> and maybe I can apply it? Um, well, I don't know. It's thinking back to my project I did when I was in college, mm-hmm. which was like a, an experimental triple album, actually. It was like the first two albums are combined together on the third album. And it's like this massive story album and stuff. Oh, so cool. that was like a two-year solid project. Wow. What kind of album was it? I mean, like, was it uh, was it vocals or was it, you know, rock or orchestral? Uh, it was almost everything. Yeah. <laughs> I was the the part that I think helped me get through that project was that um it was a lot of experimenting with new stuff I'd never done before. So it usually never felt like I was working. It was more like having fun experimenting with these sounds. I know exactly how you feel because that's that's what Horizon uh has been in in a lot of ways is I've learned so much on this project. But uh, I, I don't know if you can relate to this, but once you get a certain length into it, 
the experimentation no longer becomes fun. It becomes uh, very much more like, okay, I just want to get this done. You know, I, you, you've learned a lot of things along the way. And certainly in, in my case, I know I have really honed what I do a lot. Um, but now it's kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm tired of honing. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to, uh, to get it finished. Yeah. Yeah. So then the question is, how do you, how do you keep the tedious stuff from stopping you and slowing you down? Well, you know, that is the question. You know, I, I don't really know. I haven't found an answer for that. Uh, I don't have a good one because usually what I just have to do is uh, it's just like sheer willpower. Not to say that I, you know, like I have the strong will or anything, but like, uh, you know, I I just have to keep going. I literally have no other option. And in my case, anyway, I have zero life outside of filmmaking. Um so, I mean, in, in that regard, it's kind of like, well, you know, it sucks sometimes, but what else am I going to do anyway? So, that keeps me moving as well. Sure. Uh, well, I know the feeling myself where it's like once I get obsessed with the project, that's all I kind of want to think about or work on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've always been that way. When I was in college, I was really... Uh, fortunate that my mom worked at the college I went to, so I got free tuition, which was a great deal. Um, and I went to for for a music degree, but my main site was always on the filmmaking, and so uh, I still have around forty thousand dollars of student debt, even though I had free college because I still took out the student loans to buy film gear. <laughs> oh. You know, I wish now I would have learned more. I, I did learn stuff, of course, but I wish I would have learned more than I did. Uh, and, you know, I was writing scripts in class and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, this has always been like a laser focus for me. Sure. So when you were getting your music degree, was it were in the back of your mind kind of trying to improve your skills for film composing? Yeah, I mean, that was all, well, because, you know, it's kind of weird, because uh, I do so many, I have so many things I like to do. Um, what I actually went to school for was performance in guitar and vocals, because Elbian College, where I went to college, they didn't have a composing program, even though composing was what I wanted to do mainly in music. And they didn't have a film program either, otherwise I actually would have done that. But the main goal was always film, so what I did was because, you know, I I wanted the college degree and I wanted to get better at music. So I did that. But the focus primarily for me was still on film. So when I wasn't in class, I was working on my movies. I was I was buying camera gear. I was shooting short films. I was editing and visual effects and all that. And of course, I've always uh, composed for my own films, too. And so it was uh, a learning experience in a lot of ways both musically and for film, but everything I did with film was, you know, stuff I taught myself while I was getting the the music education. I always liked music theory. That was my favorite part. Hmm. Yeah. Why do you think that is that that appeals to you? You know, I don't know, because I'm terrible at math. So you would think I'd be terrible at music theory. But I just I found the structure of music really fascinating. Um, I, I, are are you into music theory? Are you a big music theory fan? Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of a theory geek. Um, yeah, me but, too. Do you have a favorite chord? <laughs> uh, yeah, favorite chord is uh, 
Have to minish seventh chord, I think. You know, that I was considering that one, too, when I asked. I like that one a lot. Uh, but I think I'm going to have to go simpler and, uh, and go with an add nine. Uh, there's something about that. I don't know. I, I always found that really beautiful. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. <laughs> you you already predicted my question that I sometimes ask people. <laughs> and some people give me the cop-out answer that all chords are good in different <laughs> situations, which isn't really a cop-out answer. It's totally true, but I don't know. Well, yeah, it is true, but I mean, it's like, I don't know. That, that's true. I mean, I, I do use all chords, but uh, there's still some that I like to use more. You know, I feel like, uh, I don't know. It seems like everybody would be that way, but maybe not. Maybe we're just weird. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, could be. Yeah. Well, I feel like, uh, I don't know, at least with the half diminished seventh chord, it's like not one that you hear that much in pop music or no, at least not. that I can think of. It's it's like got this connotation with romantic era music for me. Yeah. Like Debussy and late romantic stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's usually about the only place you're going to hear a chord like that these days. Otherwise, and I'm not knocking, you know, uh, pop music or anything, but like it's the, uh, the six, four, one, five, you know, every, every time. Six, four, one, five. And they don't usually bother to throw in the crazy chords. Yeah. Well, now that I know you are really into theory... Um, oh, no, now I'm going to be tested. Well, <laughs> well, I, I'm just curious if you've like studied Star Trek music, like the the themes or or anything, and, yeah. and whether or not that's like played a role in your composing for Horizons. Or for Horizon, sorry. Yeah, I mean, don't feel bad. Uh, literally everybody calls it Horizons with an S. Uh, <laughs> I, I, in fact, I even did one podcast uh, where a guy forgot the name of the movie completely. Oh no! So uh, you're, <laughs> yeah, you're not, you're not, you're not that bad off yet. But uh, you know, I, um, yeah, I mean, I don't just study the, the Star Trek music though. Like, especially film music being my thing, um, like. What I really like to do is listen intently when I'm driving, which is maybe not always the best idea, because uh, it's really easy to get focused on it. But because um, and the other thing that's hard too is, especially for film music, you don't often find full scores like the written scores, so it's hard to study them in that regard. So I will, you know, repeat endlessly tracks from various uh, scores that I really like, and I will go in and listen for every little intricacy that the composer is is doing. And I have done that with Star Trek music. I really like Jerry Goldsmith, who wrote for a lot of the Star Trek films. It's surprising. You know, I don't think a lot of people realize just how deep some scores are until you really go in and listen for every little thing a composer is doing in there. Yeah. What techniques have you been using in your score that's a good question i don't i'm I'm not sure how to answer uh because i mean for me like i don't have a set technique that i go to because and this is i think part of the reason why like the first 
few bars of any scene that I am uh, scoring are always the hardest for me because it's finding the 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 musical language of that scene. I mean, you had the language of the film as a whole, but each scene has a certain feel to it, and it's kind of like navigating that field of of what instruments do I want to use here? What sound do I want to use here? What kind of rhythm? I mean, I have different things that I do. Like, I, I like to separate out a specific instrument for specific characters or big themes. I'm not as into, for the most part, doing a specific melody for different characters or themes, but I like to have a different sound. And sometimes I do do do, do different melodies as well. But uh, it's it's really about, for me, that first few bars of a scene, finding the the pace and the sound and the feel. And once I've got that, it's usually just improvisational for me. I'll start just throwing in different ideas that I think might sound interesting. And some do, and sometimes I'll put in an idea, and it's like, what on earth was I thinking? But I like that imp- improvisational approach to composing, where you just start throwing ideas out there and, and see what sounds good. Yeah. I can kind of relate to what you're talking about, where the the initial putting the music in is the hard part. Um, because I've found lately that I, the more and more I do film scoring, the more I feel like I'm intruding in the <laughs> yeah. scene. Because it's I know like what you I'm. Mean. I'm I'm more aware of what people are going to notice, and mm-hmm. maybe I'm just noticing my music more. But no, I know what you mean. It's it's hard, especially especially with different types of scenes. Like I find surprisingly action scenes to be some of the easiest to write for, especially if it's a big action scene, because like the chances of your music being intrusive are really slim. In yeah. that kind of scene, because there's so much going on anyway. But like the hardest thing for me is when you have a quiet scene and it's like, you know, two people talking about like the death of someone they love or whatever. And, you know, you want to do something, you know, in some cases, like some sort of like lush, beautiful music because it's sad. But it's really hard sometimes to find that balance between lush, beautiful music that's sad and lush, beautiful music that completely overrides the dialogue and the emotions of the scene. And sometimes you really have to pull it back. And I haven't found a good, uh, you know, like method for determining that. It's just a lot of times playing with it and throwing down chord progressions when I start and, and seeing, you know, what sounds good. And I've noticed, too, that what really makes that hard as well is not having... And he's, you really have to pretend that you're mixing the the film when you do it. Because a lot of times, something that you write that may sound bombastic, it just sounds like it because you, you've pretty, you've probably, you might have the dialogue track muted or something while you're composing. And once it's mixed into the final film, it, it meshes very smoothly. So it's, it's a hard uh, minefield to navigate in a lot of ways. Yeah. I'm actually working on this scene in a movie, uh, a skydiving documentary. And one of the scenes is a guy talking about this really graphic death of someone that he witnessed who had a skydiving accident. And, uh, yeah, it, it was really hard figuring out what sounds to use right after that. 
Um, right. Because it's like you I, don't want to you don't want to go over the top with it. No, no. And I especially up, in that case because it's real. Yeah, I know. Yeah, the, it's there was no way I could put music underneath him talking about it. I don't think because it is so graphic. Yeah. But luckily, like the editor put in shots of clouds after that to give some space for the music. Um, so right. that helped, I think. And the, I think the other thing that helped me in that was layering and gradually bringing in new layers after that. So it could just start with a very simple tone. And then build to tie the story to the next scenes that happened. Especially in that case, I think it's really hard to find the appropriate sound. And sometimes I've found that, like, even just the tone, you know, like some kind of like a you know, a drone or one thing I really find that I like a lot in a lot of cases is just doing a lot of pedal point harmony. You know, where you've got the constant drone and you're doing some kind of melody over that long bass note. Because at least in a lot of cases, that avoids the issue of where you have these, you know, dramatic chord progressions and, and big string movements and all that. And it's it's a much more simplistic way of, of scoring a scene. But like even in that case, I don't know if that would work because it's such a it's such a heavy subject matter, you know, and yeah, it's a that's that's a hard situation to approach. Yeah. I assume what you 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 were able to find a solution for it that that everyone was happy with. Uh, yeah, I th- I think so. Um, the editor liked it anyway. Let's so. hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. No, but I, that pedal point idea is good because even like two voices, it's pretty simple if you just have two tones, but the tension you can create with just two tones, yeah. Yeah. can do a lot. No, yeah, it can work really well. And there's a lot of cases, like even in uh, a lot of movies and TV shows, because one of my big inspirations is Bear McCreary, who wrote for Battlestar, of course, famously, oh, yeah. the, the sci-fi channel show. And there's a lot of times where, you know, he'll have that kind of situation, you know, where he does a lot of the uh, Middle Eastern sounding music with the doodock or, or, the, or the soloist over you know some kind of bass tone and uh it, it worked really well in that case too yeah so i'm kind of curious um one of the tracks you sent me is called iconian mm-hmm. and i'm assuming that's kind of like the theme for the the alien race iconians yes uh, are you a star trek fan by the way uh i am watching through next generation but I haven't watched Enterprise, so I I didn't know about the Iconians. Well, actually, uh, the Iconians come from the next generation. Uh, they were actually never mentioned in Enterprise, but I, I wanted to incorporate elements from the other shows into, into the movie to kind of give it a, a more cohesive feeling. Oh, cool. So, yeah, what, what are the Iconians, and how did you make music that related to them? 
Well, the they don't really have any sort of themes or anything in TNG. They're really only uh, mentioned in one episode, and uh, the episode is called The Chase, I believe. But the gist of their story is they were this ancient civilization that lived around 200, 250,000 years ago, and they went extinct, and history records them as the demons of air and darkness. And the question that the episode poses was, were they really demons of air and darkness, or did primitive races just interpret them as that because they didn't understand the Iconians' technology? So... What I wanted to do was incorporate, because I always found their story interesting, so I wanted to incorporate them into Horizon, and I've added some backstory to them. And so the gist of their story is that they basically created a galactic society, much like the Federation, which is, uh, for people who don't know, the Federation is, is the main uh, organization in Star Trek where all the good guys work for, and it's a galactic or attempting to become galactic society of peace. And so the Iconians in my story basically did that 250,000 years ago, and it fell apart. So that's one of the main questions of, of the story. The film is, can you do that? Can you create that sort of society galactically, much less, or on Earth, much less galactically? And so when approaching the music for the Iconians, I wanted something that sounded mystical, that sounded not like the rest of the score in a lot of ways. So going back to the idea of they do have a theme, uh, a melody, but also they have a sound, which is the, the duduk, which is an instrument I like a lot. What is that duduk instrument like? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a Middle Eastern uh, from that area of the world, and it's a, a wind instrument. It's basically their version of a flute. And uh, it has a very unique sound to it. You hear it a lot in, in Bear McCreary's Battlestar scores. And I hear it a lot more in, uh, in a lot of other scores these days, too. It's kind of a popular instrument to go to if you want uh, a mystical sound or a mysterious sound in your score. Because I guess Middle Eastern instruments mean mysterious sound. I don't know, but it sounds cool. <laughs> um, yeah. And... Yeah, I don't. I don't know what it is about. Like, it's just maybe because that's so that culture is so separated from from like our American culture uh, that it all whatever they do musically always seems kind of mysterious and strange. But that's the instrument I've always been a fan of it, and so that was my go to choice for the sound of the Iconians. I don't know why, but one of my favorite progressions, it's so basic, is uh, is when you're in the minor key and you do the major five back down to, to the one. That progression is weaved into the Iconian theme. I suppose, like, in a lot of pop music, I don't know for sure, but like I feel like minor songs use minor five chords with them. But yeah, like back in the day, like classical style would always use a major five chord leading to minor one. Yeah, I like them both. Um, what I one of the things I like to do is I like to mix it up in a piece, 
So sometimes I'll first go to the major five and the next time through, you know, that progression or the repeat, I'll do it with a minor five. And I think that gives it uh, sometimes an interesting, unexpected sound. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting how the trend changes where when you do go back in classical music, it's almost always major five every time. And now the, the minor five, is, I mean, it's a, either way, it's, a, it's an interesting progression that I like, but it is interesting, you're right, how it's changed. Yeah. I'm kind of curious from a logistical standpoint, how do you make a, a Star Trek film? Like, did you have to get permission from the creators or is it somehow just okay to do a fan film? Well, it depends on the property. It's it's kind of weird with Star Trek too because Paramount owns the movie rights and CBS owns the TV rights. And so for whatever reason, uh, CBS is always the one that uh, I guess is the one that's talked about in regards to fan films. But they have been incredibly friendly in terms of letting people do this kind of thing. Now, there are other companies and other properties, like, for instance, somebody I seem to recall, like, on Kickstarter, they tried to, you know, raise funds to do a Final Fantasy VII fan film, and Square Enix, you know, shut them down pretty quickly. Uh, I Personally, just from a business standpoint, I don't think that's a good idea, because it's always going to be more fan involvement in your product, and that's a good thing, and it can only have potential to get more eyes on your product. But CBS, so, I mean, with Star Trek, like, there's a ton of these projects out there. Mine is one of the first to take place in the Enterprise era. But, I mean, there's other projects that make loads and loads and loads of money and donations, far more than I have. Uh, one of the big ones that I've also worked on as a visual effects artist is Star Trek Axanar. And they've made close to, in total, from their various Kickstarters and their PayPal, close to $2 million in oh. terms of crowdfunding. Huh. Yeah, and you know, I've made around thirty-five thousand. Uh, once you add the PayPal and the Kickstarter, so I mean, it's a, it's a. But they also have names involved with their project. Like a lot of these projects, they get a lot of the old Star Trek actors involved, and uh, mine is much more of a, you know, grassroots thing. But in terms of you know CBS and copyright, it's it's pretty much been a non-issue. I guess they could always step in at some point and, and say, hey, we don't like what's going on. But so far, they've been really friendly towards fan films. Oh, that's cool. I wonder if there is something about like sci-fi properties that... like I know Star Wars is the same, right? Because yeah. uh, George Lucas just, I guess, has enough money, so he doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, and the thing is, like, generally speaking... These projects are not going to take much money away from the copyright holders. Even in the case of Axanar with, you know, their million plus, close to $2 million, that's still peanuts to a major TV and film corporation. When you think about, like, a lot of times these TV shows, and generally speaking, more than this, they will spend, you know, $2 million per episode. So when you think that like a fan film is like it's two million dollars is a ton of money, but to you know a company making twenty two episodes of a show a year that's just that's nothing. So at the end of the day, I think it would cost these corporations more money to put together a team 
that that's like their fan film division where they handle like you know sending out c and d's to fan films it would generally cost them more money to do that than to just be hands off and say okay you know we we let you do your thing and we'll do our thing and you know whatever the fans are doing can only get more people interested yeah well, I think that's a great approach. And you're right. George Lucas has been the same way, too. I mean, because I think they even have the Star Wars Film Festival or something like that, or at least they did at some point. So in even a bigger way, he's been friendlier to fan films. Yeah. Yeah, I participated in Star Wars Uncut. I don't know if you heard about that, but... I haven't. What is it? It's like um, they split up the entire New Hope into, like nine second chunks and then they did like a crowdsourcing thing where they had everyone sign up for one of those nine second chunks and do their own version like film it or animate it and then they combined it all as one big movie using the original audio and music and everything so that's pretty cool or yeah just using the music actually because people did their own like acting and right uh it turned out um pretty interesting yeah i'm sure actually it got a daytime emmy i think or some sort of emmy award oh wow um so they they did uh actually empire strikes back i know they did that one too and probably return of the jedi is coming up at some point but that's cool cool. i hadn't heard of that yeah yeah totally and it gets your fans involved in a really interesting way and, uh, you know, especially then when you get to the point where you're winning daytime Emmys for it. And, of course, Star Wars doesn't need more fan attention at this point. But, I mean, <laughs> like, that that is a great way to uh, – not not knocking Star Wars, by the way. They just have so much. Uh, yeah. But it's, it is a great way to get people to, to get the brand out there even more in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, I'm curious what kind of tips you have for people on doing a Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it's – the the biggest thing I will say with a Kickstarter is make it as professional as can possibly be. So you want a great video, but you also want a, a detailed page, and you also want to show that you can make great content. And so the biggest thing I see with Kickstarters that always turns me off is a lot of times the video will be really bad or the page will be really short without much detail. Um, and this is just me speaking. I don't know what other people's, uh, user experiences, but when I go to a Kickstarter, I don't even look at the perks. I watch the video if it is watchable and I skim the page. And if it looks like it's going to be a good project, then that's when I start looking at perks. So that's the biggest thing I would say is like, you want to get your initial presentation as spot on as you possibly can because it's that it's that same thing in advertising where you know you want your ad to be short and to the point otherwise you lose people and you also want it well done and so i mean it's probably kind of trite advice like oh do a good job i mean who anybody could tell you that but i see so many it's amazing to me really so many kickstarters where people just don't put the effort in like their video you know i'll play the video and there's audio only coming out of one channel or you know it's like how hard would it be to just do you know a fill to your other channel at least so you don't anybody who's wearing headphones you don't make them deaf in one ear or you know they have other things it's like 
you know, they're doing a voiceover in their video and you can clearly tell where they've cut the voiceover and they've inserted something new or whatever. That's the kind of stuff to me that says, like, whoever's doing it, you probably don't have a good work ethic. So why would I give you money? And Mm -hmm. because it's so easily fixed. And so that's for me anyway. I don't know about the general audience. Yeah, that is a good question because you being an editor would notice those things and but i i totally agree with you that i think it should be professional well and you know the thing is like as as an editor i notice that the audio is only coming out of the left channel and it should be coming out of left and right your average viewer who doesn't have the editing experience won't notice that but they will probably notice that something's not right and they'll say, well, this just doesn't sound very good. I don't know why, but it doesn't sound good. So why would I donate money? And so that's the, that's the thing to... Uh, yeah. Uh, Subconscious. Yeah. And on the other hand, though, um, other people have given me the advice that um, it should be as personal as possible, like even webcam style, which well, I think it... I guess it just kind of depends on what kind of project you're doing. It that and it depends on how much money you're asking for as well. Um, I am all for the personal approach because mine was personal. I I did uh, in the Kickstarter. You know, it's still up there and the videos on YouTube as well for anybody who's interested in checking it out. But I I sat in my captain's chair on the the virtual bridge set that I made. Um, And I just, you know, talked for a few minutes about the project. And I was, you know, I said, you know, this is my passion project. It's my project. Like, I'm basically the only one working on this. And, you know, I talked about how my mom basically taught me to sew so I could sew all the costumes. And so I think that that is a personal approach because, you know, I went and asked for, I actually asked for 10,000. And I went on my video and talked about, like, you know, how much I love my mom. So, uh, it's, so there, there is something to the personal approach, but I still think it needs to be done in a professional manner. And so like the webcam thing, I'm sure could work for some things, but generally speaking, it wouldn't entice me to donate because to me, it says I didn't want to put much effort into my video. So I just pulled out my webcam and recorded me talking for a few minutes. Yeah. Well, I, I produced a Kickstarter video for my friend, and mm-hmm. we did it like professionally, but in a way that felt like it was because a lot of the time she does webcam videos, and so yeah. we tried to get in that style, you know, like jump cut. Edits. Right. Well, see, that's the thing. If you're doing it for like a vlogger, you know, then then it makes sense because like this this is what the person does. I'm a vlogger and I'm asking you for money to help with my vlogging. So then, yeah, webcam would make sense uh, in that in that regard. Yeah, but good audio always is good. So <laughs> yeah, and you know, the pe- we we always say that audio is just as important, if not more important. Usually, actually, more important than your picture in a movie, because you can have a mediocre picture and you can can completely save it with amazing audio. But it's interesting that uh, the reverse is not true at all. If you have terrible audio in a great picture, it's just never going to work at all. Yeah. Hmm. How much of your day do you spend doing creative work? Uh, usually all of it. 
<laughs> all day, every day. I, I really wasn't kidding when I said I don't have a life outside of this. And, you know, that that's a whole nother discussion in itself, whether or not that's fulfilling, I couldn't tell you. But um, if it's not Horizon that I'm working on, I have other gigs that I'm doing as well. Usually a lot of visual effects stuff. And beyond that, I mean, there's a lot of render times I have to wait for and stuff like that. So, like, if I'm not doing that, I might go out to dinner with, with a friend. But generally speaking, this is all I do. Or, or as I mentioned earlier, I will, uh, I will binge watch a show to help get my mind off things. So, like, all the time, if I'm not working on film, I'm watching it. Hmm. Yeah. That, I would think that would be tough to keep that up for years at a time yeah you're right i mean it's it's interesting because i mean horizon was three years ago when it started and it's funny how my mindset has changed uh over that three years because when it started i i very much was like the the like i'm gonna i'm gonna win the world you know i'm gonna make all these movies i'm gonna do it all myself because you know it's why not uh, I want to do it all myself. I like learning this stuff, and I like doing it. And uh, now that I've spent three years working on this project, I'm so tired. And, uh, and of course, other projects as well. And so it's, uh, you're right. It has gotten to that point where I, I need to start branching out more. And uh, it's, it's hard to do, though. It is, to, at least for me, to, to branch out because I'm so used to this lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, I can, um, I'm right now kind of like starting to get obsessed with tabletop game design, uh, which is like pretty different from what I've been doing the past few years, mostly music and video stuff. But, right. But I, I can like see my future laid out ahead of me a little bit in that I will probably get like super into it and, dedicate a ton of time to it possibly with no uh monetary goal in mind i know how that feels (laughs) but yeah it's it's uh it's sometimes tricky like if if i wasn't doing corporate video work to finance it i i don't think i i could go down that path like if i was yeah if i had another job that didn't have so much flexibility or right yeah yeah i know i know how you feel because like that is the one nice thing about doing things the way i have especially with so much freelance and my own projects is like i don't you know i don't have an eight to five granted i'm still working all the time but it is flexible i don't have to be a certain place at a certain time every day and so that does give you a lot more options but at the same time you know, like getting into the the tabletop game design, like I'm a big fan of game design too, like video game game design. And it's something like I've always wanted to get into, but you know, it is hard too, because like it, it's, it's a life so fully devoted to what I normally do that I don't even have time for that special interest or that hobby or, or cultivating those other interests. So in some ways you do have the flexibility, but then in other ways, like you just don't have time for anything because you don't have eight to five. You can't section off your day and say, okay, eight to five, and then I can do whatever I want. It's like just throughout the day, throughout the night, whenever you're always working. At least that's been my experience. Yeah, it's tricky. 
what do you um, picture as the the end goal for Horizon? Like, are you hoping to get it into theaters for screenings or like film fests or? Well, I I never expected that because like that is the one limitation of a fan film. You can't profit off of it. You can't, uh, so you can't do theaters, you can't do film fests. I mean, like, I'm going to have a local premiere for it, but otherwise, like, you can't get distribution. So my goal with this project, aside from the fact, like, it's just something I really wanted to do, but professionally, I hope that it would help me make connections and, and get my name out there in a way so I can move on from this, you know, DIY, like, one-man band thing and start doing the directing, which is my end goal to be a director, like, you know, have JJ Abrams job, which I don't expect to happen, but like if we're dreaming, um, Mm -hmm. you know, like that, uh, that's, that's the end goal. And so that's what I'm hoping the film will do. And it has in some ways done that it has made connections for me. I've gotten a number of other gigs because people have, you know, seen this and said, Hey, you know, the person who made this looks like he he knows what he's doing like visual effects wise so he can do effects for our movie and so that that has happened and hopefully that's my goal for that to happen in a larger degree and even if it doesn't like still my overall plan is the same that after this i want to continue directing yeah i'm curious like how you set yourself up uh or i guess like, how do you promote yourself as a director versus, like, doing technical things like visual effects? It's really easy to show a reel. Mm-hmm. But directing it is, seems, I guess, people who are in the business know a good director when they see one and see their work. But yeah, it seems harder, like it would be a little bit harder to break into that versus, like, a specific technical thing. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. This has been one of the biggest challenges for me, especially uh, even the other gigs I've gotten from this project. You know, the people I work for say, you know, uh, like, what are you going to do if ILM calls you up or, you know, some other big visual effects company? I'm like, well, first off, that would be really cool. But like, that's that's not, you know, what I want to do. So it might even have the the adverse effect of like nobody realizes I'm even remotely interested in directing. They just think I'm a visual effects guy. But it, it is really hard because even for me, somebody who's lifelong wanted to be a director, it's only really in the last few years where I've really started to be able to watch a movie or watch multiple movies from a specific director and see that director's voice in the film. Because it is a lot of times a very subtle thing that uh, I think most people wouldn't know the difference between, you know, Spielberg and Lucas or any other director out there. They 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 just see a movie. And so but in terms of promoting, yeah, honestly, I don't know, because like even when I've put my reel together, I am I'm putting all my best visual effects work on my best cinematography work. Um, But when it comes to like showcasing my directing, I don't really know. I'm not really sure how to do that, to be honest. Like, you could put scenes, like, specific scenes on there, but even that's kind of hard. It's like, how much of the scene do you include to show that you're a good director? And and there are still a lot of things, like, as a director, that's hard to, to show off. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping that just, like, the fact that I've done it a lot, that'll be part of uh, what people recognize. And 
I don't know. I suppose like when I watch a movie, I can tell if the director knew what they were doing or not. How how can you tell? Like, what are some giveaways of uh, poor directing, and not just like poor acting or something? Right. I because uh, and I will say too, in regards of acting, as somebody who's worked with a lot of bad actors, uh, not necessarily on this project, but I mean, you know, like when you're, and of course, like when you're starting out, like you know, you're not that good either. So I can't talk to like I was great, but I worked with bad actors. But I mean, like there is a certain point where, like. As a director, there's nothing more you can do with bad actors. So, like, yeah, you, you tend to give uh, somewhat of a pass on that. But it is also really subjective because a lot of times it's hard to quantify what's good and what's not. For instance, when I've watched some fan films or, you know, especially like the the higher profile ones that, that got donations. And they do things that as a director... When if I was on set, I would have done it a different way, and that's the easiest way to describe it. You know, for instance, there was one, you know, where uh, they they have what was supposed to be a warp core part, and this character is you know holding up and swinging around this warp core part to talk about it, and it was literally a a CPU heat sink, and so I mean that's like really basic, low level. Like as a director, I would have said, okay, guys. We're not using a CPU heatsink that's supposed to be a warp core part for a spaceship in the 24th century. So, I mean, then there's you can get into other things like the language of the camera and, and how the camera moves. Did the director make the best usage of camera angles for a particular scene? Uh, stuff like that. You know, another thing I've seen, like as a director in one of the fan films, they had establishing shots of the spaceship, like literally every time they would go to a different scene. So it'd be like every two to three minutes, you would have another shot of the spaceship to remind the audience that you were inside the spaceship, which was totally unnecessary and it interrupted the flow and it just looked dumb. And that's a choice that a director would make. But I mean, it's stuff like that where you have to look at any scene and think, is that a call that the director would make? And ultimately everything is on a movie. And could it have been a call that was made differently? Yeah. You mentioned in one of your interviews that Enterprise, the show, kind of got you through some depression. And I was just kind of curious, like, what was it about the show that helped you out? And, like, what advice could you give maybe for people who are struggling with that? Or what what did you do? in your own life that helped turn that around? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that not to be a negative Nancy, but like the depression will probably never actually, or if it does, I mean, great, but like it'll probably never actually go away. Uh, but there are things that, because it hasn't for me, but um, there are certain things that can, that can help you cope or, or, you know, give you a renewed sense of purpose um, that can sometimes help overcome the depression. But uh, with Enterprise, at the time, the the long story short is uh, that uh, I was raised very religious, and so when the depression was really bad, the the question that I found myself faced with was, um, I can't kill myself because I'm afraid I'll go to hell if I do. And so, uh, as you can tell, that like this idea, this fear of hell thing, was always a really huge thing in my life. 
for for a long time. And uh, so what I did was like I that was like the kind of the tipping point for me with with religion. And what Enterprise did was Captain Archer, the main character, is a science guy. He is an explorer and he's about discovering the universe, whether or not it's whatever he discovers is a hard truth. And so when watching Enterprise through that really hard time, Captain Archer was very inspiring to me because it was this character that always explored. And so I thought, you know, if Captain Archer is going to do it, then why can't I? And so what I did was I started looking into science. And I mean, and what you have to understand about the religious upbringing I had is that it was the, you know, evolution is a lie, uh, you know, purported by all the evil scientists of the world and the devil planted the dinosaur fossils, etc. And so when I finally started looking into science, because of this inspiration from Captain Archer, I realized how beautiful it is. And, and for me, I realized how beautiful the universe can be and is without religion. And so it was like this huge change in my life. And uh, it inspired me and gave me a renewed sense of purpose, this love for science and, and the natural world. And a lot of, I mean, of course, the depression was involved too, but I mean, a lot of that came from this inspiration I got from, from that show. And it changed my life in a lot of ways. And so the, uh, the story that I'm telling with this show, uh, with this film, is like in a lot of ways my love letter to Enterprise. It, that, that experience for me gave me a passion for this project that I otherwise may not have had for a different story. Very cool. I'm, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing the final product. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm glad to hear it. Um, that that uh, through all this hard work and all this time, uh, it's good to know that somebody's looking forward to it. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. What music from the the film has been the most fun to score? You know, it's interesting. I thought when I was making the film, like I, I was, you know, putting all these scenes together, and I thought, oh, this scene's going to be really fun to score. I'm going to really love scoring this one. Then I get to that scene and it's just like, Jesus, this is so, this is such a drag. And then other scenes that um, I, I didn't expect to be as fun were like, oh, I really like, you know, I'm really feeling the groove on this scene. And so uh, the scene so far, of course, I haven't done the whole thing yet, so I might end up having a different favorite by the end. But so far, the scene is uh, one of the tracks that I sent you and is also in the video blog, the latest video blog that I posted. And it's a, a score for one of the battle, space battle scenes in the film. And uh, that one was really fun because it was like this really energetic, constantly moving six, seven minute scene. And I wanted it to have that feeling of like, it's very driving. It's always moving forward. part i really liked in that one was the chords that kind of like stab and they kind of like fade in and then fade out it's just kind of like this dun, 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 dun. oh yeah that yeah 
that part I think is kind of uh, Matrixy sounding. Like I didn't intend for it to be at first, but like there's a very similar horn motif that you hear in in the soundtrack for all three of the Matrix movies, which is very cool. Don Davis, the composer, described it as like he wanted it to be like reflections, where like it starts in one horn and then it goes to the other, and it has that same kind of feel. But yeah, no, so that that was probably like the subconscious inspiration for me. Do you have any last tips for film composers out there? I thought you were going to say, do you have any last words? I'm like, well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, in terms of tips, I mean, first of all, like whenever somebody asks me to give advice, I always feel kind of like, well, you know, who am I to be giving advice? Because I feel I always feel kind of full of myself a little bit. But uh, I mean, what's worked for me in terms of honing the skills that I have is uh, what I've talked about is like, it's my life. And so I feel like whether you're composing or filmmaking or writing like stories or, you know, if you're a painter, whatever, like it, it has to be your life. And so when I was studying music, film and music were oftentimes competing for like the, to be the woman in my life and I could never pick either one. And it was usually film that I picked most. But that's the takeaway advice I, I guess I would give. I, I don't know if that will bring anyone success. Because I think a lot of what makes success is both money. And many people, myself included, don't have that. And luck. But I think your chances are much greater if you are willing to basically live under a bridge to do what you want to do. And that's what I've done so far. And I have not yet taken over J.J. Abrams' job, so feel free to dispense with any of my advice. <laughs> but uh, that that's because I feel like like when you're learning things, passion is the biggest thing that influences how well you learn something. And so if you're passionate about it and you stay passionate and it's not about the money, then you're likely to get good at it. And so find your passion. That That would be my biggest piece of advice and just a a fun little anecdote i always like to come back to is i like to watch restaurant impossible uh that show with robert irvine where he goes around to crappy restaurants and he tells them why the restaurants suck and there's this one guy who said this this restaurant is my passion and so robert went and like tasted the guy's food and the guy was using store-bought barbecue sauce and calling it his secret recipe like he just bought it off the shelf and robert said your passion sucks which may sound harsh, but it's true. Like, if, if you don't have enough passion to make your own sauce, but you say it's your passion, then you might want to think about moving on. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of like what crystallized that for me. Like, find your passion and find, like, whatever it is you want to do more than anything else. Yeah. Well, being as it's um, going to be Christmas season soon, especially when your episode is posted, um, you've done a bunch of christmas covers on your youtube page oh yeah the christmas song of yours that i i thought was cool was silent night oh thanks and it it was pretty impressive seeing you do like guitar harmonics along with regular plucking like the the harmonics acted like the melody right
as I was watching that, I was like, wow, that is a lot of work that went into that. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that, that I've always been a big fan of, of really interesting guitar styling. I mean, because that that's the main thing I went to, to school for. And you're right, it is a lot of work. It, is a, it takes a lot of practice because it's, that kind of thing is such a precision way to play. And it's one of the reasons I love to play electric guitar with a lot of distortion. Because you can be so much more messy and it, the distortion just covers it up. But like that kind of acoustic stuff where, you know, you're doing the plucking and the harmonics at the same time. Like if you if you miss the string or you don't hit it dead on, uh, you know, your harmonic gets muted or it doesn't sound at all. Or just the string itself sounds and it sounds really crappy. So yeah, no, it is a lot of practice. Well, Tommy, I have a question here from my last guest for you, uh, because I have oh, a sure. question chain going on in the podcast. Mm-hmm. So, Garrett Hope was asking, what has been the most unexpected but important lesson you've learned in the the last five years? So, well, this is a life lesson or like art-based uh, lesson or... Well, he didn't specify, so yeah. whatever is the most important lesson, I guess. Well, I mean, that, I mean, like, if we want to talk about, like, importance, like, maybe we should talk about, like, you know, world hunger or something, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, well, I mean, life-based, uh, it, would, it would be approaching the world scientifically and skeptically. It's completely changed my life. Uh, film-based... The, the biggest thing I've learned is to, as a director, and this, of course, goes to answering the question, like, what do directors do? Don't worry about the little details, unless it's a really important little detail. Because you will save, and I suppose you could apply this to your life, too. You will save endless amounts of time and money if you stop nitpicking and stop worrying about that little detail that no viewer is ever going to notice. And just as an example, uh, I'll use an example from Superman. It, this really uh, annoyed me when I was watching the behind the scenes of Man of Steel. They, uh, for the scenes on Krypton, they had created an entire Kryptonian language, written language, alphabet, symbols, and everything to decorate their freaking sets with. And this was never referenced in the film. You know, there was no way any viewer would ever be able to decode it. Like, even your really, you know, like, your power watcher who goes in and, like, really wants to find these secrets. Like, there's no way. So, for me, I thought, like, that is a huge waste of time and money that could have been spent on something else. And uh, you could have just drawn random shapes on the wall and nobody would have cared. And in the case of Horizon, like, when I was starting out, like, creating all the virtual sets and everything, like, I had to make sure... Like, the every little number on every keypad was exactly accurate to the show. And I wasted so much time because there's no way you ever see any of those keypads in the final film. And so that is my number one takeaway lesson, is that unless this little detail is very important to your life or to your story, just relax and let it go. Hmm. Because it's probably not nearly as important as you think it might be. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I I think like in the Star Trek universe, like with their sets, for example, they they weren't too concerned with details about like computer screens being a- anywhere near yeah. accurate. Well, you know, uh, it's interesting once you go once you go on further into the shows, like once you get to the time of Enterprise, 
like they did worry about that stuff because the show was shot in HD. And they realized that once the show was shot in HD, like the viewer could read anything that was on the screens. So that stuff always like those kind of little details always were very present. And I think, like, in the case of a TV show, it probably is more important because you never know, like, what angle you're going to film something from. Like, you never know if five years into your show you're going to have to do a close-up on a computer screen hmm. and the viewer is going to completely be able to tell that you just type gibberish onto that screen. So, but, I mean, th- there's, of course, bounds of reason to everything. So, I mean, sometimes you want to do the little details, but uh, overall, it's not that important. It's more like the little detail of... uh you know, should this character wear a red tie or a blue tie? Who cares? You know, just give him a tie. And and unless it clashes with the rest of their suit. You know, so it's stuff like that that, yeah. that I think can save time and money. What's your question for my next guest? Hmm. What has been the most valuable musical lesson or inspiration that you have found over the course of career of your career and how has that impacted the work that you do today cool hopefully that works it's kind of similar to my question but but with a little bit of a different spin yeah i like it if you have time i always ask guests to come up with a short intro theme for this podcast episode Kind of like representing Composer Quest in your. Do you want me to just make it up right now? <laughs> uh, you could, yeah. If you have, like, I could, I could just sing about how awesome Tommy Craft is. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, whatever. If you have a your guitar nearby, or yeah, I yeah, so I have my electric right here. Uh, it's probably out of tune, but uh... can you hear it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Composer Quest, Tommy Craft, talking about music and Star Trek and other stuff, and the six to the four to the one to the five, and done. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yeah, nice. I am a true composer. Oh, that was great. I'm glad you like it. In the key of E. All right. Perfect guitar key. Yes, I love it. I know, it's it's very uh, <laughs> generic, but I like it nonetheless. Cool. Well, Tommy, it's been really fun talking to you. Well, thank you. Uh, you as well. I've, I've enjoyed the chat. I don't get very often to, uh, to talk music with people, so it was, a, it was a nice change of pace. Yeah. Any um, important things to plug other than uh, what, what website can people go to to check out your, your music and your film? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the Star Trek, uh, the website for Horizon is StarTrekHorizon.com, all one word, no S on the end of Horizon. Um, <laughs> and the Facebook page where the updates also get posted is Facebook.com slash STHorizon, all one word. And uh, my personal website with uh, you know my portfolio and music and all that for anybody who's interested is uh, TommyCraft.com, and that's craft with a K, like the cheese. All right. Well, thanks, Tommy. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Tommy Craft. To stay in touch with me, find Composer Quest on Facebook or Twitter, or email me directly, charlie at composerquest.com. 
I'll leave you now with a little more of Tommy's theme for the Iconians. Thank you.